Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Uh, Anger is a whole other topic. It is one of the primary things, especially in the evangelical church world, that we teach children to deny. And as a result, we disable the gift of it. Um, I'll talk more about this on Sunday, but anger is a gift that God gives us to signal a boundary violation. Um, So, when somebody touches you in an inappropriate way, anger signals the boundary violation, right? Now, the problem is, is that because we've never been trained in anger, we now respond out of that anger rather than letting anger signal the violation and now choose how to respond we react and the adrenalinized reaction turns every perceived violation into fight flight kind of response mechanism Uh, so here's kids who are angry and so they start that anger produces all kinds of tension um, and uh, bitterness resentment etc but often that anger Will, will lash out at the custodial parent. It'll lash out at the non-custodial parent. It'll lash out at any authority figure that tries to be engaged or involved. Uh, but where it really starts to be, do serious harm is when it goes inside. And then it becomes uh, um, um, uh, eating disorders or... Uh, other kinds of uh, stress-related illnesses, and so on and so forth. Uh, And especially if the child feels he or she has to protect his parents from his anger, then that tends to internalize. And, And it may stay in there and rattle around, but it may also come out sideways against in passive aggressive behavior and so on. So these are some of the ways you want to be aware of and walk with people at the soul care level. If you notice this surge of anger, don't tell them, for example, that you shouldn't be angry. That's not helpful. It's, let's play with what this anger is about. What are some healthy ways of owning it? What are some healthy ways of, 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 of uh, responding rather than reacting? And it can be an opportunity to train people in healthy anger. That makes sense. Uh, The next one is grief. Uh, Grief is the gift God has given us to signal and process loss. So when a child feels that his family system is lost, his future is lost. Remember, in divorce, there's a whole range of future relationships that are lost. There's a not just the and then often, especially if the child is old enough to, to kind of remember the backstory, all of that gets reinterpreted. So the childhood they thought they had is lost. I, it, it wasn't as happy as I thought it was. What, whatever. And that grief piece can often uh, uh, turn clinical, depending on how traumatic it is and the age at which it comes, and so that it affects the serotonin levels in the brain and can, can result in clinical depression that is long-lived, especially if there's a genetic predisposition 
uh, in the blood family system uh, else, elsewhere. So grief, by the way, grief is normal. So it's not like we want to talk somebody out of it. It's just that we want to walk with them through it. And if it lasts longer than is appropriate or if its symptoms go deeper than is appropriate, then we want to start to say, what, what's going on here? What's this about? Um, the loss of childhood is a major one. I find this uh, dealing with the children of divorce who have moved into perfectionistic hyper-responsibility as young adults. So they're terrified to get an A-. minus. They are rabid over-performers in, in work, in school, in relationships, in whatever. Um, and part of what's lost in there, and then, and then with that, and you can see the, 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 the piece of this, they've, they've assumed adult roles in their system. That hyper-responsibility is a critical piece of that. But the part that's really been most damaged is the loss of playfulness. So, so fun to them. Uh, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how to do that. Um, and, and often it will translate into um, fun activities that aren't really fun for them. But they're, they're supposed to be. They don't know how to be silly. They don't know how to be irresponsible. They don't know how to, how to play. Um, so even play has a serious intent. And it, and it comes more like as work. They can't just play a game to play a game. They have to play to win, for example. Uh, and the playfulness piece, the joy that comes from just being with family is lost. Everything becomes a, a competition. And, 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 and competition is a bad thing as long as it maintains a playfulness. And when the game's over, all the pieces go back in the board, uh, go back in the box, right? Uh, rather than this becomes now the point of constant needling and, and tension uh, throughout the system. So that's one. Um, then the supplemental parental role that comes in and, and especially of the non-custodial parent. Uh, so, um, the, the, often, when, when, when you have a, have a child whose who's, uh, parent has, is, not, is emotionally absent, they need supplemental parents to come in and support the structure. So a youth pastor can serve in a, in a parental role, so to speak. He or she will never become a surrogate parent for them, but they can often... I had, a, I had a, when I was a youth pastor, I had a range of, of men uh, who I had vetted with the divorced women who would uh, uh, appropriately take their daughters to a father-daughter event. So, does, it, does that make sense? I'm trying to think through that. Yeah. So that, so that here's an adult man who is affirming her beauty without sexualizing her, who is treating her with honor, who is treating her with dignity, right? Which dad ought to do, but dad's gone. And similar kinds of things uh, uh, with sons, who, who need a, somebody to teach them how to change the oil. And, and so the church can often kind of reparent uh, 
the ch- children of divorce by stepping in and 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 you know, obviously you don't label it as that, but that effectively is what starts to happen there. And that's all part of soul care. Remember, soul care isn't about counseling. It's about helping them emerge as their full, healthy selves as best we can. Um, Then you have to help kids deal with the sense of abandonment. uh, And with that, a high degree of anxiety, especially if the divorce has occurred between the ages of 3 and 10 or so. Because remember, between 3 and 10, you've lost both playfulness and that the world is a safe place. So anxiety tends to be fairly high in kids of that age and and uh, and with that sense of abandonment and when one of two things tends to happen either a hyper control a grabbing uh at and a and a real uh tight control of anybody who has any relational connectedness to me or a, a distancing a separation a rigidity uh, so that no, you can't you can't hurt me. Nobody will ever hurt me like that again. So I will be close to you, but only so close as to avoid being hurt if you leave. And they tend to go one of two ways there. Um, so again, you'll see this in a dating relationship. If a 13 or 14 year old girl's dad has gone away, they will find a 17 or 18 year old boyfriend who will reparent them. Um, usually inappropriately, as you can imagine, because they cannot, an 18, 19-year-old boy can't affirm a 14, 15-year-old girl's sexuality without sexualizing her. Do you see? Um, and that becomes uh, obviously a, 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 an issue there as well. Uh, but that abandonment piece is huge. Um, often there are significant trust issues. In, that have developed, and a part of our soul care is helping kids learn uh, to choose to trust when you don't feel trusting. Trust is a choice, uh, that, that uh, a gift that is given that may or may not have been earned. Um, and this, as you can imagine, often impacts relationship with dad. But more specifically... Uh, that works itself out in relationship with God. So my God is my father, uh, as you can imagine, is not always comforting imagery uh, for kids whose father has abandoned them in their, in their perception. Um, what I've found in this, all of these things, is that kids at almost whatever age can deal with reality. And you don't have to be harsh and hard, but tell the truth always. Even if it feels like it's going to hurt them, it is much less hurtful to them than a manufactured story, which they will then discover is not true. Uh, Truth, reality, kids can deal with. And if they don't get reality, they'll make their own up. And that often is way more damaging than whatever it was that actually happened. So, so we want to walk with them in terms of what's actually going on. I have found, as a, as a youth pastor and walking with kids, um, not just in this issue, but particularly, for example, I had a kid who was dealing with terminal cancer. He, he was sick and was going to die. He knew it. I knew it. But his parents would not allow 
anybody to talk to him about it because they wanted to protect him from the inevitability of his death. But he just wanted to talk about it. He knew he was going to die, and he just wanted to talk to somebody about it. But they protected him, uh, so it was not uncommon for, for him and for he and I to get together for coffee, pick him up for school, um, pick him up from school. Or when he was in the hospital, he asked his mom and dad to leave, and we would sit and talk. Um, and um, that that was some of the most challenging conversations I've ever had. But tell me what's true. I, I don't I don't I don't want fluff, right? Um, so trust and and the more you lie to children, obviously the less likely they are to trust you about anything. So truth, all, reality, they can manage. Um, probably the greatest gift in soul care that we can give is to help kids identify and express their feelings. Uh, if a child has been shamed for his or her feelings, uh, it's not that they don't have them. It's that they've been trained not to speak them or not to feel them. So, so I, was, I had coffee today with somebody who has just learned because her role in the system was the buffer. So she was never allowed to have her own emotions, anger, whatever. Everybody else around her could be vibrating, but she, could, she was never allowed to because her role in the system was to be the, the buffer. So her task over this last month and a half was to follow herself around and write down every occasion in which she became angry. Not one time in the last month and a half since our last conversation did she become angry. Now, does that mean she'd never experienced a boundary violation? Or that the gain on anger has been turned down so much because she's never been permitted to be angry? Oh, by the way, the other part of the conversation is dealing with her increased bouts of depression. I wonder where that comes from. Internalized anger. Right? So, help them identify and express their feelings. Uh, give them vocabulary. Listen to them. Give them a safe place in which it is possible to say how much they hate their dad or their mom or what's happened to their system or whatever. In most other instances, unfortunately, kids are told that they're not supposed to hate which is problematic because they do. Now, they don't really, but they really do. Do, do. You see what I mean? So if we give them a safe place to talk about that, now we can recalibrate that and reframe it and speak it back so that now it fits into a framework that makes sense for them. But if they're not ever given permission to hate or to be angry, at mom or dad, then that doesn't mean they're not. It just means that it goes inside, right? Uh, provide a vocabulary, but do it tentatively. Does this sound like it might be what you're feeling? Is this, is this a word that's helpful to you? Because if you're not careful, you will force meaning on their feelings. 
So this listening piece, the asking of questions, the creation of a safe place for them to talk is the critical thing. To acknowledge and validate their feelings is, 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 the, is the key piece. Okay, so any questions or comments on any of this part? Yeah. Shame is a weird thing because um, it's it kind of a neurotic guilt piece that, that is unanchored in reality, but is used manipulatively, often used as a controlling mechanism uh, that, that as kids uh, process what they think should be against what is, and if there's disparity in there at a negative level, in other words, the imagination of what should be is greater or better or whatever than what I'm experiencing, that shame piece often kicks in as the form of neurotic responsibility and guilt. Often parents will, as a way of, of controlling behavior, use guilt, and that produces shame uh, as well. The problem with shame is there's not a whole lot you can do about it. Because it's not rooted in reality. Guilt you can deal with. But neurotic guilt you can't deal with. Guilt you've done something wrong. So what do you do? You confess your sins. You receive forgiveness and, and move on. But neurotic guilt isn't rooted in moral wrongdoing. You, you didn't call me at 3 o'clock Sunday afternoon. I know. I was busy. Well, you should have. I, I waited by the phone for two and a half or three hours. I, I thought something had happened to you. I, 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 I didn't, I didn't, I, I was worried. I was worried sick. Well, that's too bad. I'm not responsible for your being worried. But if I'm made to feel responsible, because that usually is a manipulative structure. Remember, I talked to you about this last week with uh, the uh, Garrison Keeler's Prairie Home Companion. Um, anyway, if you listen to that, you'll hear it. Um, so that's that's the other piece. And shame, unfortunately, is really really crippling. I don't know if that, is that is that helpful. Oh, almost. Well, it's usually the enemy or the self that generates it. But parents, unfortunately, start it. Yeah. And they started as a way of controlling behavior. So, um, so I'm a child of divorce and of divorce. And, um, and, when I, when, and I, when I'm listening to all this, it, it resonates very deeply with me and issues that I've had. And as a person who sees soul care under the context of a, of a framework of friendship or relationship, Walking with, yeah. It's not a stranger, it's someone that you have some sort of relationship with. Right. Um, I kind of have two questions. First of all, like, I remember being a child and going through all this, and then being a, a parent, a, a wife, and going through all this. What I was looking for was hope. Like, where is the, where is the hope? And I know that our hope is in, you know, I, I know that our Because 
Good word. Yeah. I recently um, lost my 23-year-old son in a scuba diving Hmm. And for me and my grief journey, as well as my family and our close friends, that word hope kept coming up. Yeah. Yeah, hope is primarily a function of relationship uh, that promises presence and future. So, in other words, you're not alone. Uh, I will walk with you through this. This darkness will not last forever. And I will walk with you through the dark as long as we need to. So, kids need to know. And, and, and the challenge, as you probably know, is with younger children, they have no sense of time. So 10 years from now is like forever. Uh, and, and so sometimes hope is just incremental day by day. Uh, and especially if grief is attached with the loss of a loved one, hope is 24 hours is, is just relational presence. Uh, so incarnation, the incarnation of God in, in Jesus, this is why I love Christmas as the season of hope, right? Because hope and joy are interrelated and are rooted in the reality of a God who is with us, who will never leave us or forsake us, and for whom the darkest of our days is a completely comfortable place for him. Uh, so hope is, I think, primarily about accompaniment, uh, and often I think of hope as being a, a leaning forward rather than a starry outcome. It's, it's more, let's just get through today, right? Does that make sense? Anybody else? Yep, yep. Religious system. Yeah. Where, I mean, a lot of what we, we work with, you know, the, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. And it's a great question. Yeah, and I'm just a little bit kind of tentative in, in thinking, like, can I, you know, bring this discipleship to families where they might not see things the way I see them in terms of... Yeah. That's a great, thank you, that's really good. Um, I believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in everybody all the time. They might not acknowledge Him as such. They might, uh, and, but I, and I think Jesus teaches us this, that, that any leaning towards goodness, any leaning towards truthfulness, any leaning towards, this is why when people say, how come non-Christians are so kind sometimes? Well, because the Holy Spirit's there. They might not acknowledge that, but he's, he's doing that, right? So when I'm dealing with kids, I don't hesitate to use language because kids have... There's, I have never met a kid who's an atheist, right? Because they just... They, of course, of course. Uh, I have to be careful 
to respect parental systems if that's going to get in the way of that, uh, if that's going to be problematic for them. But frankly, if I'm my responsibilities to the child and walking with that kid in my youth group or, or whatever, I'm still going to care for him as an independent of his parents or her parents. So I, I tend, I don't use spiritual language very often with anybody because I think it's, it's useless with Christians because they over-spiritualize everything, tend to. And then with people who are not Christians, it tends to be meaningless anyway. So I'll, I'll use different language if I can uh, to help because none of this stuff is necessarily Christian. It's just human. And so I would come at it from that perspective. Right. But the overall goal is to bring the person on this journey towards Christ likeness. Right. But not necessarily to become a believer. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah. Right. 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 And, and so with them, I'll say, my goal is to help you become more fully yourself. Because remember, I've suggested that becoming more fully yourself and becoming like Christ is the same thing. It's incremental. Good. Really good. Thank you. Anybody else? See ya. Yes. I've just observed this. So these things can come up at 30 years old when you have your first child. Yes. Yes. You know, and so now we're having a child, and you're having to process through. We're not, we got here, and it's not like we told to. Right. Exactly. And so, so I, I just, the brief thing for me is like. Just ongoing. It's ongoing. I'm realizing you're walking with people like. Yep. That you're, that it will continue to come up at different life stages, whether they're getting married. Yep. Very true. Very true. We haven't talked at all about walking with kids through blending, blended family systems. Uh, That's a whole other set of things that would be worth spending some time thinking about. Uh, But, uh, yeah, just didn't have the time to, to spend into that. But, yeah. Right. Is it the same for children? Yes. Okay. 
Because if, if the parent dies, then that's a reality. And I can learn and lean into that. And nothing changes. If a parent is, I mean, the, the question, right? Gone from three or four or five, and then all of a sudden back in my life at 12 or 13 or 14, it's just like, what, 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 what? And it, 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 yeah, it's really challenging, especially if the tension or animosity keeps bubbling up between between parents. Yeah. There's almost no closure with divorce. Correct. Yeah. Well. Yeah. It, 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 and closure is a real slippery thing but because the same thing happens right you you're always reminded of the loss but you're right the problem is is that they they don't go away they they keep coming back and then the grief again and again and again yeah it's huge right and inevitably even with death one feels abandoned, but definitely so with divorce, because that was, as you said, a, a choice issue. Yeah. Okay, just some red flag warnings to finish up here. Uh, I, I don't know if I've got the whole verbiage on the top of this, so let me just read this. If you observe these things, don't panic. Do you have that, Lane? Oh, okay. So any or all of the following may appear for, at stages and for periods of time. Uh, if they persist or get worse, it might signal something requiring more intentional help. But it's not uncommon, for example, for somebody to deal with sleep problems uh, for a period of time and then for it to go away. Or deal even with something rather more dramatic like cutting or um, uh, an eating disorder or more particularly disordered eating, which is not quite the same thing. It's on the way to an eating disorder. Um, and I don't, when kids tell me they've got an eating disorder, that they're cutting, I, okay, so, so what? I don't, in other words, want to respond as if the world's coming to an end. Because it could very easily be a cry for help, and now we're talking. Could very easily be a temporary way of dealing with things. Uh, than than, uh, a permanent way of dealing with things. However, if the behavior persists, then we maybe want to deal with something at at a greater level of intentionality. And you can see something, sleep problems, including bedwetting, sleepwalking, nightmares, poor concentration, trouble at school, acting out, drug or alcohol abuse, um, uh, self-injury, cutting, disordered eating or eating disorders, frequent angry or violent, it's, that should be violent. There should be an N in there. I don't know what a violent outburst is, but anyway. Um, withdrawal from loved ones or refusal of loved activities, things that they've... So, in other words, just observations, this could ebb and flow, but if it becomes more consistent, then you want to say, what's, what's up with that? What's going on with that? Um, yeah. Okay, so any questions or th- comments on any of the 
things that you want to push back into in any of this stuff. What, what do you mean exactly by intentional health? Do you mean counseling? Yep. The danger, obviously, is that as soon as one suggests counseling, then the question is, what's wrong with me? Which you need to be able to give an answer to that doesn't place blame on them. They're very, very similar. Uh, sometimes, as we said back at the, at the first one, a, a, a divorce is better than a persistence in a bad marriage. Staying together for the sake of the kids sometimes can be helpful depending on the nature in which you stay together. But remember, at any point that the divorce occurs, kids are, are impacted by that. Um, the problem with a bad marriage is that it's persistent. So it feels the kids like a war zone. And uh, a lot of kids exhibit symptoms very, very similar to PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, having come out of uh, a, essentially a toxic environment at home. Yeah. This, this, what we're dealing with here now is why the Xers and the Ys, the post-millennial, the millennials and the post-millennial generations are the most anxious generations in the history of the world. Because they're dealing with all of this stuff. It's huge. Huh? Not, a, not just of divorce, but the, the, it, 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 this is one of the things that contributes to it. Yeah, there are uh, multiple other factors. And, and uh, what is really getting lost with that, those two generations is the playfulness of childhood. Because that's where the resilience gets built in, is in the, in the playfulness piece. So, so when for an eight or nine year old play is an hour of practice in the little league field and not just playing a pickup game of ball, you feel the difference. All play becomes work. Therefore, it's no longer play. And that, that contributes to it. There are other factors, but. That's it. Right. Right. Creativity and imagination gets gets hit in the side of the head. So when when you and I grew up, my mom didn't see us all afternoon. Right. We were gone. Right.
outside. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah, more. Yeah. No, it's it's huge. The urban environment makes that really challenging. So we were scheduled to meet next week, but my schedule got whacked. So we've canceled next week. Uh, so this will be it for this one. Uh, you can pick up the last week on podcast, and this will be on up. And the handle will be available for all of them. Um, and then we'll do another one in the spring on something else. So if there's a topic that you'd like us to look at, yeah. let us know. Uh, and we'll continue uh, our conversations in soul care, remembering that the goal here is to raise up a community with a vocabulary because I view soul care as a form of discipleship. This is how we grow to Christ-likeness, which is what the whole game's about. So, cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.